So in science, when we want to predict what's going to happen next, we often build models. So we get a group of experts together who understand what we're trying to model. They come up with all the variables that matter. They build a model and they run that model and they try and predict the future. And for many problems, this is a very sensible way of understanding how they actually work. But what happens hypothetically if we took a different approach? Instead of getting the experts and building the models, what happens if we went out and asked random members of the public what they thought was going to happen next? And on the surface, this seems a ridiculous substitute for a carefully thought out and built model. But to talk about this situation, we're going to be joined on the show today by Rajiv Sethi. He's a professor of economics at Bernard College at Columbia University, and he's an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. And it turns out we don't have to hypothetically imagine this situation of asking members of the public what they think. The system for doing this already exists, and this is known as a prediction market. And in a prediction market, people not only say what they think is going to happen next, but they actually bet against one another on what will happen. Now, why would we be interested in this compared to a traditional model? Well, it turns out there's many situations where this very traditional model building approach works really well, but there's others that it doesn't work well at all for, particularly those involving some social aspects. So Rajiv is going to talk about prediction markets. He's going to talk about their history, how he got involved with them, how they actually work. And he's going to talk about how sometimes they seem to be better at predicting what's going to happen next than models themselves. So today on the show, Rajiv is really going to explore, is there such thing as the wisdom of the crowd? This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Rajiv, welcome on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Sean. Prediction markets, what are they? Well, they're financial markets. It's a special type of financial market for the trading of a special kind of asset, a contract, if you like, that has a very simple payoff structure. You buy the contract, and if referenced event occurs, you get paid, and if it doesn't, you get paid nothing. So these are sometimes called binary options or event futures. These contracts are, have an extremely simple structure, but aside from that, it's just a financial market like any other, like stock markets or futures contracts uh, markets and so on. So give us an example of what would be traded. So, for example, there's a fairly active trading at the moment on an exchange called Predicted in the United States on who's going to be the next president of the U.S. So you can buy contracts on various candidates. So there are contracts that reference Trump being the president of the U.S. There are contracts that reference Biden being the president. And then there are a whole bunch of other folks who are plausibly or at least possibly considered to be viable candidates. And so there are contracts traded in all of these individuals. So right now, for example, you can buy a contract for about 39 cents that would pay $1 if Trump is elected and will pay nothing otherwise. That's the structure of the Trump contract. For the Biden contract, the price is about 37 cents. For others like Gavin Newsom, there's uh, Kamala Harris, there's Nikki Haley and so on. The prices are lower, around uh, 10 cents or 4 cents and so on. And are you buying those contracts of someone else who has them? So someone else is selling you that contract and they're getting the money? Is that the way that's working? 
That's exactly right. So each trade, so these are what are called peer-to-peer markets. The exchange itself doesn't hold any positions. All it does is brings together buyers and sellers of the contract. So if I buy a contract, let's say for Joe Biden to be the winner of the 2024 presidential election in the US at 37 cents, all that means is that somebody else is buying a contract that says that Joe Biden will not be the winner and they're paying 63 cents. And so the exchange will collect 63 cents from them, collect 37 cents from me. If Biden is elected, I get paid the dollar. And if he doesn't get elected, that dollar goes to my counterparty. So basically, it's just a bet between two people, essentially. And the interesting thing is that the price of these contracts is often interpreted as a probability. So the likelihood of Biden at winning is considered to be, at least from the point of view of the market, about 37%. And of course, there are hundreds of thousands of these contracts traded. I mean, I just mentioned $1 as a single contract, but of course, you know, a single trade could involve 1,000 or 2,000 contracts. And you can sell on these contracts afterwards. Once you've bought it, you can go and sell it to somebody else. You can sell it within seconds. You might buy it in the hope that it's going to change in price a little bit. So I might buy the Biden contract for 37 in the hope that within a day or two or maybe a week, I'll be able to sell it for 40 or 45. My counterparty may be hoping that the movement will be in the opposite direction. So these are liquid contracts. The exchange is open for 23 hours a day. And so they are traded quite heavily and quite actively throughout the day. So what's the history of these prediction markets? The earliest ones of which I'm aware have been around since the 1980s continuously. So those are the Iowa electronic markets contracts. And they were launched by the business school at Iowa, the Tippy School of Business at the University of Iowa. They have been in operation from the 1980s. And for a while, they were the only game in town. And then this started to grow. The Iowa electronic markets are not profit-based But Intrade, actually in Dublin, Dublin Dublin-based exchange called Intrade, became extremely successful at recruiting people to trade contracts such as these. And I did some work with the data. They were very generous in sharing their data with researchers. In fact, even transaction-level data, every single transaction over the course of a couple of years was available to us as researchers. In the U.S., Predicted, which I mentioned earlier, is probably the main active prediction market. Iowa Electronic Markets doesn't get a huge amount of volume. In the UK, Betfair is a prediction market of this kind. And then there are various others. There was one in New Zealand that was shut down, I think, by regulators in New Zealand. But the predicted exchange in the US is managed, uh, designed to some degree by folks at Victoria University in Wellington in New Zealand. That's a nonprofit as well, although they have fairly hefty fees for trading. But I think the original, the folks who were involved with the original market in New Zealand are now involved with predicted in the United States using the term market, and obviously it is because you're buying and selling, but it is betting, essentially. It is, but Sean, so is trading in stocks and futures and (laughs) currencies. It's not fundamentally different. We are speculating, but there isn't a whole lot of difference conceptually between speculation and betting. You know, you're taking a price position. You're taking a view on what's going to evolve in the real world and therefore in the market. And how do you get into this regime? I got into it partly because my research deals with information, broadly speaking, and part of it has to do with how information is aggregated in markets, how markets can be used to bring together distributed information, information that is scattered in society, and whether or not this can be done in a way that improves on conventional forecasting methods like model-based methods, epidemiological models, climate models, and so on. It's the wisdom of crowds idea. And I was also interested in it as a participant. I enjoy participating in these markets. 
you actually learn something about the world because if you find that the prices are surprising to you, it suggests to you that there's information that you haven't looked at or that hasn't yet become available to you and can get you thinking. So even as a participant or an observer of these markets, I find them quite fascinating. But of course, it's also linked to my research. And your research is focusing on how these markets as predictive tools. That's part of it. Part of my research deals with their performance. You can measure their performance. For example, a very widespread measure is something called a Briar score. Any forecast can be evaluated based on the probability that was assigned to an event and then the realization of the event, whether or not it occurred. So, you know, if you predict that it's going to rain tomorrow with a 70% probability, and I predict that it's going to rain tomorrow with a 60% probability, and it actually does rain, you'll end up with a better Briar score. It's basically a mean squared error because in a sense, you were closer to the actual outcome. You were more confident that it would rain than I was. So you'll get a better performance score with regard to forecasting. But if it doesn't rain, I'll get a better score because I was more uncertain about whether it would or not. You were quite confident that it would rain and it turned out not to. So you can use a measure of performance and then you can aggregate over time, over contracts, over different types of events. And you can try to see, do markets perform better, worse, roughly on par with models? Are there any patterns in their performance that stand out that one could think about? Because their mechanisms, as forecasting mechanisms, they're really very different. A model, if you think about COVID forecasting, think about forecasting hospitalizations or deaths from COVID, a lot of this was done based on epidemiological models, which were then augmented and enhanced with other kinds of variables. But you have to figure out ahead of time what's relevant for the forecasting problem at hand. You know, you have to pick your variables, you have to fit the model, and then you have to apply it and, and make forecasts out of sample. With prediction markets, you don't have to do any of such thing. Any model that anybody has in their head can be an input into the forecasting process as long as people trade based on that model. So if any variable that any trader considers to be relevant to the forecasting problem becomes relevant to the forecast produced by the market because their belief is going to be affected by that variable and they're going to trade on that belief. So it's a very different approach to forecasting. And there's no, you know, you can't sit down and mathematically or logically work out which forecasting mechanism is going to work better. Prediction markets are very rapid response mechanisms. So I'll give you two examples. So one was capture and killing of Osama bin Laden. When that happened, there was a jump up in the price of the Obama contract to win re-election in 2012. So the market traders believed that this would be an asset for him as he was running for re-election. There are no variables such as opinion polls, like economic indicators, popularity of the president. None of that actually changed rapidly enough to change the forecasts of conventional models. So you get a difference in speed of reaction. And also there are certain things that can matter that markets can respond to, which models cannot simply because they're missing the variable. The second example I'll give you is also from the same time period, roughly. It was the first debate between Obama and Romney. And... Obama was, to viewers of the debate, to be very unprepared for it, that he had not really bothered. You know, he just thought he could coast through it. And it turned out in the judgment of people who were watching that debate, they felt that Mitt Romney had gotten the better of him in that debate, quite substantially better. And you saw big movements in the markets, not huge, obviously, because you're talking about proportional movements. The prices shifted in a noticeable way towards Romney. But then, you know, that effect dissipated over time because there were two other debates and Obama's performance was better in subsequent debates, but a model is not going to be able to respond that quickly to an event that's not conventionally a part of the model, right? such as debate performance. So markets will respond to information that is relevant, but usually you would not find in conventional models. And that applies to COVID forecasting, climate forecasting. It applies to all kinds of things that are very important forecasting problems, but 
models have limitations. Markets have their own limitations. So markets are subject to manipulation. They're subject to herding sometimes. There's something that I call the paradox of prediction markets, which is that if a prediction market's forecasting performance is really outstanding, like if it is believed to be extremely accurate, then there's a very strong incentive to manipulate it. So I'll go back to that 2012 election between Romney and Obama because I studied it in some detail. I looked at transaction level data. This is in collaboration with David Rothschild, who's at Microsoft Research. And we looked at transaction level data on Intrade at that time. And it turned out that a single trader, a single account, ended up betting about $7 million on Romney to win. And the pattern of trades was such that it looked like, we can't be sure because I don't know who this person was. This was anonymized data, but it was a single account. And about $7 million in bets were placed to, for, on Romney to win over the course of two years on that market. And it looked like it was somebody who was trying to prevent the Romney price from falling too far, like setting a wall, if you like to the price of the Romney contract and a ceiling to the price of the Obama contract. That was the pattern of trades that we observed there. Now, why would somebody do that? It could be that they were just very confident that Romney would win and that they felt the market was wrong and they're willing to put a lot of money behind that. But it could also be that they wanted to affect public perceptions of whether Romney was viable as a candidate. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, beliefs about whether somebody is a credible, viable candidate affect things like their morale, turnout, volunteer effort, donations, all kinds of things that could actually affect the objective probability of winning. In fact, if you can convince people that somebody is not a viable candidate, that might actually turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. They might actually lose because people will lose enthusiasm. They'll stop donations. They'll stop, you know, working. And so manipulation of prediction markets is something that one has to think about a little bit. And so the paradox of prediction markets is this. If the market is believed to forecast accurately, it's worth manipulating because people will, your manipulation will actually move people's beliefs. But if the market is basically just random, just throwing out forecasts that nobody takes any seriously, then you wouldn't bother to manipulate, in which case it would be accurate, or certainly more accurate. <laughs> and actually, after David and I published this paper, we actually did hear from people who we could only report as anonymized accounts. And a couple of people that we heard from, you know, told us that they had tried foolishly or unsuccessfully to manipulate earlier elections and so on, you know, to throw money into shifting beliefs, generally unsuccessfully. It can only last for a little while before the market responds and sees it as a profit opportunity and just you know, takes advantage of you, which is what people did in 2012. So the $7 million accrued to other traders. The losses of this individual were profits for others. Can you talk a little bit about if the prediction market is working well, is this a, a version of wisdom of the crowd like you mentioned earlier? And can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So the idea of a wisdom of the crowd, again, goes back over a century. There's a tale of a competition that involved, I don't know, maybe 800 people trying to guess the weight of an ox. This was in 1906 at some fair in Plymouth. This is a story that always comes up when one discusses the wisdom of the crowds. And the basic idea was people submitted their estimates of the weight of this ox. And the statistician, Francis Galton, noticed that the median forecast was extremely close to the actual weight of the ox. You had people who made absurd submissions as far as the weight of the ox was concerned, much too low, much too high, but the median was, was extraordinarily close. So this story is used to illustrate the idea that even though people themselves may be, individuals may be very far from accurate in their predictions, the crowd can sometimes really perform extremely well. Now, prediction markets are not just devices for recording people's beliefs. They actually involve a trading process. The beliefs of people who have large accounts are weighted more than beliefs of people who have small accounts, who, you know, who are betting smaller amounts. And furthermore, these amounts that they're betting are based on their past performance. 
So people who are successful traders previously will generally become more confident. They will bet larger amounts, so their wealth will increase. So they become progressively a larger part of the market. And this is very different from simply just taking a bunch of forecasts and averaging them, which is what the wisdom of crowds idea is about. So it's something a bit more sophisticated, or I would say a lot more sophisticated than simply just averaging people's forecasts. Because people actually learn from the market price. They will adjust their beliefs based on what they're seeing in the market. They'll adjust their beliefs based on the size of bets that are placed against them and so on. So it's a much more complicated mechanism than simply averaging people's beliefs. And to the extent that it performs well, and there's, you know, there's a fair amount of data that it performs well under certain conditions, to the extent that it performs well, it actually raises a puzzle as to why, you know, what are the mechanisms that make it perform well? And there's a little bit of uh, theoretical work that I have done on this with Dave Panak, who's at Rutgers, uh, and uh, a couple of other people, Nisarak Shah and Wilhelmine Ketz, who's an economist. We just have a simple model about people with different beliefs betting against each other sequentially, repeatedly. And it turns out that, you know, as long as a variety of views survives, as long as the market just converged to a single belief, as long as there's still people who disagree with each other and continue betting against each other, the average price approximates very well the objective underlying probability with which an event is occurring. So it's a very simple model, but sheds a little bit of light on how endogenous transfers of wealth with people who are successful accumulating wealth at the expense of people who are less successful can give rise to increasing accuracy of forecasts. But there's a fair amount of literature now on whether the markets actually forecast better than models. The work that I have looked at for the 2020 election suggests that they perform better than models when you're far away from the election, but not so well near the election. But that's just for one particular election cycle. And I wouldn't necessarily generalize that too far. There's a very common mistake that is made when people talk about prediction markets generally, which is to say, look, the traders are not representative of the population as a whole. So the traders certainly are not. They're not representative with regard to age. They're not representative with regard to gender, nor political ideology, nor even national origin. They could be betting on events, and there were events on Predicted, for example, related to the Arab Spring, and there were a whole bunch of people betting on that, and so on, these kinds of contracts. And the idea that just because you're not a representative member of the public means that the markets must be doing poorly is, in my opinion, wrongheaded. I mean, that's not the way to look at it. Now, when you're doing an opinion poll and predicting elections based on opinion polls, you must get yourself a representative sample. If your sample is not representative, you'll typically engage in a weighting procedure. So if your sample is, let's say, disproportionately male, and you know that relative to the voting population, then you want to overweight the women who are respondents in your sample relative to the men so that you get more accurate predictions. So that's a very standard thing with regard to conventional opinion polls. Markets are not like that at all. They're probably, you know, close to 90% male, the traders. And of course, that's not the case with regard to voters at all. But the key point is that these traders disagree with each other. They have strong incentives to take into account how others are going to behave, regardless of how they themselves are going to behave. Now, most people in these election prediction markets, they just vote in one direction or the other. Uh, the work that I did with David Rothschild, we find that about 90% of traders will either just vote, they don't switch sides, but about the 5 to 10% who do switch sides, they are the ones who are really bringing information into the market. They're responding to events in such a way as to make the price more accurate. So you talk about that a little bit more, because that's fascinating. So I looked at your paper and you're like 87% or something, just stick to one from the work you've done. So what's going on with those traders? Are they committed Romney fans or you know, is there a strategy? And then is it the other group who aren't aligned to one candidate? They're the ones who are playing the trading games. Oh, they may be aligned to a candidate. They may have very strong preferences on whom they would like to win. 
but they don't let that affect their trading positions. That's the key. And those 87%, you're exactly right. Those people never switch sides. But the point is that many of them are on the Obama side and many of them on the Romney side. So they balance each other out to some degree. It's just like the weight of the ox. It's like the people who overestimate and the people who underestimate heavily, they sort of cancel each other out to some degree. Now, there's still sort of distortions involved. There could be more of one side than the other. And it's the few traders who are switching sides and who are trying to take advantage of mispricing who are the ones who are bringing that simple average closer to a more accurate forecast. Because if the average is tilting too much one way, they will bring it the other way. So the, yeah, what are they doing that's different? So you, are you saying that if you've got a disproportionate amount of Romney fans, for example, who are trading and, and they believe Romney will win and that probability gets artificially increased, is that correct, that he'll win, which then makes the traders go, yeah, but he probably won't. So what do they do in that scenario? They take the opposite position. So if the price, so let's take the example that I started off with that Right now in the market for the 24 presidential election, you've got about 39% probability or the price for the Trump contract is about 39 cents to the dollar. Biden about 37, roughly even. But the two together are about 76%. So where's the rest of the probability? It's on other candidates like Nikki Haley. Gavin Newsom is double digits. I'm not exactly sure. There must be some information that I'm not seeing. And that's why prediction markets are quite interesting. Now, suppose that I'm somebody who's really very confident that Biden's going to win. He's, you know, he's the incumbent president. Incumbents have a certain advantage. I really think that that Trump is facing uh, a lot of legal troubles, that although his support in opinion polls is very high, that it will eventually collapse. Suppose I were to believe those things. I would consider 37 cents per dollar on a Biden contract to be great value. I'd consider that to be an attractive price. And so I might buy large numbers of those contracts. I might bet hundreds or thousands of dollars at those prices, which would cause those prices to increase. So the price would move from 37 to 38, 39, 45. It'll just rise as long as people are doing that. And the prices of the other contracts will correspondingly fall. That has to happen. Otherwise, there's a profit opportunity. The prices of all these various contracts have to at least roughly add up to $1. If the total payment from these contracts is going to be a dollar, you don't know which one will pay but you know that they'll all pay zero except for one, which will pay one. So the sum is $1. The sum of the prices should also be roughly equal to $1. Now, why is that? The reason for that is if it's not. So for example, if Biden contract is at 55 cents and the Trump contract is also at 55 cents, let's say that's totally adding up to a dollar and 10 cents, then I could sell both contracts. It would cost me just 45 for the Trump contract. I'm taking the opposite position, 45 cents for the Biden contract. So I'll be paying 90 cents and I acquire both of those. Now, one of those is not going to be president. They can't both be president. I'm converting 90 cents without any risk into a dollar. One of those two bets is going to pay off, even if I don't know which one. I don't even need to have any beliefs. And so that will force the prices to come into alignment with each other in a way that makes their interpretation as probabilities actually sensible. So the market forces through the activity of profit-seeking traders, the alignment of prices. Now, this process can be disturbed by a fee structure that gets in the way of perfect alignment. But if you look at the Iowa electronic markets, you have perfect alignment because they have no fees. And basically, you have people trading with bots. They have written programs. And if the prices of all the contracts, they even get one-tenth of one cent above one dollar. <laughs> An algorithm will trade against all of them. It'll buy the no position on all of these contracts and drive it down. It doesn't last even a fraction of a second. You can try that if you like. 
this percentage of people who are not gaming it, but they're trading it. So they've got their information. They believe they know what's going to happen, but then they're trading on the mechanics or could you say they're trading on the misplaced beliefs of others? <laughs> that- That's right. That's what's motivating them. They're trying to identify prices that they consider to be unreasonably high or unreasonably low, and they're trying to take advantage of that. Now, Sean, that takes me to a, another point that I have written about, which is about prediction markets as depolarizing devices or anti-echo chambers. And what I mean by that is the following. So there's a lot of literature now about how people on social media are ending up in echo chambers, that they are being exposed to beliefs that just reflect, that hold a mirror up to their own beliefs. And this is referred to as filter bubbles sometimes. The algorithms are directing them towards content that will please them. And the the content that pleases them or leads to greater engagement is content that really reinforces what they're already thinking. Now, this is considered to be a bad thing that people are not exposed to enough of a variety of other opinion. Now, there's work by economists, Jesse Shapiro, Matt Genskow, and others that says that, look, yes, you do get ideological segregation online, but it's not as great as ideological segregation offline, you know, in cable TV or in neighborhoods and so on. And I think that that's absolutely right. But even online, prediction markets are, in fact, the opposite of every other platform in the following sense. If a prediction market starts to just get full of people who just absolutely convinced that Biden's going to win and they cause the price of that contract to go up to, let's say, 60 cents or 70 cents to a dollar, that will look absurd to people who are absolutely convinced that Trump's going to win and they will be attracted to the market. The market just could not exist in that filter bubble because it would lead prices to move in a direction that look absurd to people who are not in the market. And as they enter, that will not just change the price but it will increase the diversity of opinion of market participants. If everybody thought the same way, they really wouldn't be betting against each other and your market would basically end up with hardly any volume. So the incentive structure of markets causes them to be, in some sense, depolarizing. And in the social media landscape or in the online electronic platform landscape, that makes them very different from things like Twitter, X, Facebook, Threads, Instagram, and so on. Because if your own activity involves people who just think like you, you're not going to find many profitable bets to make. And others outside of that will be attracted to that environment. That is a really powerful realization, isn't it? So you, you're coming up to elections or coming up to anything. You're saying, don't look at Twitter. Don't look at any platform that self-reinforces your own views. Go look at essentially something that challenges your own views and prediction markets do it with real money. No matter what your view, you'll find somebody on there that would challenge it because If that diversity of traders didn't exist, the market wouldn't really be functioning. In fact, I had a feeling after the last election, 2020 election, that it was the prediction markets that gave us an early warning of January 6th, what happened on January 6th in the United States. Because even after the election was certified by the states, even though it was completely apparent that Biden would be declared winner, there were traders very, very active on predicted and other prediction markets who had a different view. And they were placing large amounts of money on people like Mike Pompeo, for instance, to remain in the cabinet. And that could only happen if Trump remained in office. And so you had this very substantial sums of money with implied probabilities of about 10 to 12 percent that Trump would actually remain in office after the states had certified their vote totals. And it was impossible to imagine a scenario under which Trump would remain in office. But of course, once January 6th happened, people did imagine such a scenario. In fact, you know, it turned out that there were extraordinary pressures on Mike Pence, which he almost succumbed to, that's the latest reporting, which would have led to enormous profits for these folks. 
who were betting in ways that seemed absolutely absurd and incomprehensible at the time. But the lesson from that, to me at least, is that things that you can't imagine, maybe other people can imagine. And if they can imagine it, prediction market trades will reveal it. And is there any other examples of that, Rajiv, where the market has really nailed an outcome that to the rest of us would have seemed very hard to predict? When Trump first announced that he was running for office, there came down an escalator in Trump Tower. And this was very early on. This was long before the very first primaries. And I thought he had no chance at all. You know, I've lived in New York for a very long time. And he was a very well-known figure in New York. And it did not strike me as plausible in the least that he could win even the primary. And so I, I bet against him winning the nomination and winning the presidency. And this was 18 months or so before the election, even, I think, roughly speaking, it's about that. And normally what happens, at least my expectation is that if I place a bet in these prediction markets, if I take a position in these markets, the price ought to move in, in the direction that makes those bets profitable, that leads to a correction of the price. I thought at the time it was about 14% probability of Trump winning the nomination when he announced. And I thought that's absurdly high. So I thought it would you know, go down and I could bet against that event, pay you know 86 for the opposite position, and it would move in a direction that I anticipated. And gradually I started to lose money on this position, just one cent or two cents at a time. And it was extremely puzzling to me because I thought, how could it be that it's going from 14 to 15 to 16, when it should be going from 14 all the way down towards zero. It really did not. I really could not. And this was very, very early on. And I immediately said, okay, there's something I'm not seeing over here. So I completely closed out my position. And by Thanksgiving of that year, at that point, it was still conventional wisdom that Trump had no chance whatsoever of getting the nomination. And at Thanksgiving, I predicted that he would based on the fact that I had initially bet against it and seen the price moving in a way that surprised me. So I did wonder when I saw all that trading, whether there's something I'm missing, but I had no idea what was going to transpire. So it's fascinating coming from a very scientific background, you know, the idea of sitting down and building a model and getting the variables and getting all of that sorted and getting it right seems like a really sensible approach to things. And really, you're saying that when we look at these prediction markets, there are other ways of being able to see what the wisdom of the crowd is, shall we say, and I'm, I'm a minute more broader than the very traditional sense of that. And is it as simple, I mean, this is a very trivial way of saying it, that you could sit down and build a model of something happening, but if you're trying to model the right situation, there are times when just watching people bet against each other is a more accurate way of predicting the future. Certain things, yes. And even if you take very technical prediction tasks, Take, for example, the prediction of the hospitalizations and deaths that were arising during the COVID pandemic. You had a very large number of models, around 80, I think, at one point, submitted to the CDC weekly. These were researchers. They were building models. They were fundamentally epidemiological models, but they were augmented with data and they had their own flourishes and so on. And they disagreed with each other immensely. And their forecasting performance was really quite poor, even on average. And there was no market to compare this to. There was a few contracts that were traded on a relatively new market called Kalshi, but there was nothing to compare it to. I can't carry out an apples to apples comparison between markets and models. But let's think for a second about the kinds of things that would affect COVID hospitalizations and deaths that a model, epidemiological model, just wouldn't pick up. Even a statement, I mean, Donald Trump was president at that time, even a statement by him suggesting that masking was a bad idea, let's say, or that school closures was a bad idea. And these may or may not have been bad ideas. I'm not making a judgment on that. But a single statement by somebody like that could have an impact on people's behavior 
and that impact on people's behavior is going to affect the rate of prevalence of this disease and hospitalizations and deaths. Policies by governors in different states would have an impact. Statements by influencers, by people, podcasters, all of these things are going to affect in a good way or a bad way, positive way or a negative way, things like hospitalizations and deaths. And you just cannot put all of these things into the model. And so how should all of these things get into some sort of forecasting mechanism? One way is to try to construct hybrid forecasting mechanisms that do take model inputs very seriously, but augment them in some way with some sort of market-based mechanism or some sort of belief aggregation mechanism that allows for non-experts to play a role because they would be focusing on things that the model leaves out. Conceptually, there are so many things, you know, especially in rare events. The pandemic was a rare event. We don't really have a lot of data on which to calibrate our models in order to have confidence in our forecasts. And there are a whole bunch of variables that just simply would be omitted, at least initially. But they might be completely obvious to various people. Even though people are non-experts, you think about something like, you know, the number of Category 4 hurricanes, let's say, during hurricane season in the United States. You could have a market on that, for instance. Would there be value added above the very good models we have now on climate and weather forecasting? I don't think models that are built and calibrated and developed by experts are necessarily so good that they could not be further improved by some wisdom of crowds content. I think hybrid forecasting mechanisms are potentially very valuable. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it seems almost silly, doesn't it, to say, oh, let's look at a group of non-experts betting against each other and see if that adds anything. And of course, what you're saying it adds is it captures all these very human variables or socio-variables that we don't necessarily capture in our very traditional models. But as you say, for example, with the statements in COVID and masking and views and all that sort of stuff, it has a massive impact on the hard science piece of it. Even an election. Take an election. You know, suppose that, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, you get an election and there's a change in the governor of a state from one who is highly restrictive to one who is more lax in terms of the policies that they support with regard to preventive measures of disease spread or the other way around. How do you put that into a model? Of course, your model will eventually pick up the effects of this election because you'll see it in case rates, you'll see it in death rates, you'll see it in things that are actually part of the model. It will eventually appear in the variables that you have got into the model. But it might be completely obvious to somebody who's watching this election, oh my goodness, this transformation is going to have that effect. But the model is not going to consider it to be obvious. Rajiv, thank you very much for being on the show. You're welcome. My pleasure, Sean. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.